Welcome to the Mini Break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Monday, December 21st. Is it the offseason? Is it not the offseason? It's the question we ask ourselves every Monday as we look on the calendar and we see, oh, there were a couple of ITF events this past week. The tennis season truly never stopping for a pandemic, for a December to give these players a rest. No justifiable reason. Always some form of tennis around the world for all of us tennis fans to enjoy and joining us on today's podcast to break down all of last week's ITF action uh, preview what we can expect to see this week and then talk a little bit about the ATP challenger season we just saw run through the media guide some of our biggest takeaways the best players the most noticeable trends as joining me once again here on this Monday podcast you know him as the guru of the pro tennis travel guide the Pied Piper of the daily match pick em. I know him as tennis in aloha as well as our newest crack rackets contributor judson wall judson welcome back to the show how are you doing today hey gresky i'm doing well thanks for having me again i i enjoy these weekly get togethers we have yeah is it a get together is it a therapy session i feel like it acts as best of both worlds for both of us we got to get through the off season somehow. <laughs> exactly. It's funny. I was talking with Jamie McDonald, another member of our Cracked Rackets team, and I was chatting on the phone. I think it was Friday night, and of course, what do I do on a Friday night? I talk about Cracked Rackets with Jamie McDonald, and I was like, man, I, I can't remember the last time I sat down and just watched like an hour of uninterrupted tennis, and he was like, you know what? I can't remember the last time I did that either, and then we were like, you want to watch tennis together on the phone? Is that weird if we do that? And he was like, no, it's not weird, and so that's what we did, and it's it's like, yeah, it is the offseason still. We want to get our fix. I watched earlier today the Alex Demonauer Dennis Shapovalov ATP Cup match highlights, and I forgot Demonauer's little shimmy he does to celebrate at the end of the match. And was that the best celebration of the 2020 season? Honestly, it might have been. And it was just like, yeah, to, to have some time to go back, look at these gems, it is a little bit nice. At the same time, we also learned this week uh, that we are going to have a 2021 schedule starting on time that we are going to have ATP and WTA events at the beginning of January uh, all the way through the Australian Open, which starts February 8th. You, of course, write about that a little bit in your weekly review preview. And let's just start there before we get to any of the action even. Uh, your thoughts on the initial schedule rollout, the events we're going to see through the first month and a half of 2021? Yeah, I, uh, you know, I think they did a pretty good job of, getting a fairly full schedule out there. I like to say we start on time. Week one has plenty of action. Each tour, the WTA, the ATP, have tournaments. The ATP has rolled out two 250s in that week one slot beginning January 5th. And the WTA has a, a WTA 500. That one's in Abu Dhabi. That sort of took the place of the Mubadala exhibition that they normally do. And, uh, you know, that one makes a lot of sense to me on the women's side because they're they're going to hold the Australian Open qualifying uh, at that location. I believe it's that same location that week or it's somewhere close. And then they'll charter flights down to the Australian Open. So that makes a lot of sense to have a tournament there to, to begin the season on the WTA side. And then on the ATP side, Delray Beach moves up in the calendar from it's normally held in February. It's moved up to January 5th. And, uh, you know, that, that gives the, the American players and maybe the South American players as well, the North American and South American players, a nice little spot to be to begin the, the season. And Antalya, one of the ITF mainstays, they're holding a, a tournament uh, as well that week one. So plenty of action week one. There's ITFs as well. The challenger schedule doesn't begin until mid-January. But uh, yeah, I think the, the tours did a pretty good job of piecemealing together a January and February schedule considering the big elephant in the room that they had to play with, the Australian yeah. Open. You know, they didn't know when it was going to be held exactly, uh, how it was going to be held, where qualifying was going to happen if qualifying was going to happen all those things they had to deal with last minute and uh yeah so i think they've done a good job yeah 
No, to your point, and we're hoping to get Reem Abulail on the podcast later this week to talk about this more in depth, but look, there were 14 ATP events, I think, through the start of February 24th, uh, before the start of February 24th in the 2020 season. I think there are, what, seven events here to start off 2021, and half the events, given that we're in a pandemic, given that we get to keep the Australian Open in that portion of the uh, season, I think that's a success, absolutely. And look, for this early part of the year, what hangs over the head of all of these tournaments is these were the events that got to play in 2020, and they are not in the financial situations of the events that did not get to play, those 250, 500 events that if they don't play back-to-back years because so much of their uh, profit is generated from on-site revenue, things such as ticket purchases and concessions and yada, 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 you know, they don't make that much from the media revenue, the TV rights they generate. Uh, If those events don't get to come back later in the season, then I think we really have to start talking about, okay, we might have a problem moving forward. Where are these events going to pop up in the calendar, say 2022? Can an event, just throwing it out there like in Atlanta, afford to come back after missing two straight seasons? But um, no, I, I think geographically they nailed it as well to put uh, an event in Antalya. You imagine a lot of the players are going to go straight from there to Australia. It's perfect for the Europe, the Asian, the African-based players. For the North American, South American players, they can start out their seasons in Delray Beach before heading to Australia. It's good that they got two regions logistically uh, for the ATP calendar. For the WTA calendar, it's ditto, right? It was you know Dubai, and then they have the two events in Melbourne. I think they are also, I think it was 14 WTA events at the start of last season as well. It might have been 12, um, but they seem to have done the exact same job that the ATP did. Now, they don't have that North American tournament or, you know, something for, I suppose, the Western Hemisphere, but... I, I think that's still a smart move to get players to Australia as quickly as possible. I don't think there's any shame in that. And I, I overall, I would say, yeah, absolutely a success. Clearly, uh, they used their nine months to schedule this out. Clearly, there is a plan. Now, we'll see how the integrity of this bubble holds up. Uh, but, yeah, I, I agree with you. I think, per, you know, and we'll see about the challengers, the ITFs. It's still, I mean, I guess that's something I know you look at closely when you look at how the early portion of the year is scheduled out for challengers and ITFs. How different is it in 2021 than 2020? There's a, there's significant difference actually, although it's hard to say too much right now because the ITF schedule comes out a little differently than the ATP and the WTA announced their schedules. Uh, you know, the ATP and WTA in normal years will announce their, basically their full schedule for the year at the, you know, before it starts. Uh, the Challenger Tour kind of goes by quarters. So they'll announce January through March or April, you know, right before the year starts. And then go, go on that way. They'll announce it in quarters. The ITFs, you know, you might have an ITF pop up a month before it gets played. So it's hard to say what that final ITF schedule will look like. Uh, but so far, it doesn't look like... Or, excuse me, I should say it does look like they are missing several tournaments. Now that may fill in, uh, particularly the U.S. has a few tournaments, a few ITF 25Ks for the men and uh, maybe a little higher than that for the women in, in January, usually in the L.A. area, the Florida area on Green Play. A lot of those are missing. So I think the pandemic is still going to take its, its casualties um, but <clears throat> there are there are tournaments there, and so there are tournaments there to be played by the lowest level of professional tennis. Up, you know, from unranked all the way up to about three hundred is usually the type of player that's playing ITFs. And then, like I said, beginning in mid January, there are one to three challengers per week scheduled, and there could be more mm-hmm. added to the to the calendar. Mm-hmm. No, I, again, that is another big thing is which of these cities will or won't be allowed, which of these counties, which of these countries will or won't be allowed to even host events. And I should say I looked it up. WTA Tour, nine events to, uh, up to the start of February 24th last season. They're at five events this year. So, again, it's about a 50 percent drop off, which 
is probably what we all expected on the calendars. Yeah, it's absolutely the lower levels that are going to feel this the most. And look, this dates back to May when we found out that Oracle was no longer going to have the Oracle Pro, uh, Pro Series. They weren't going to host those Challengers events. Those were coming off the schedule anyways. Uh, but certainly there will be other events that feel the pain of this pandemic. Hopefully, uh, we will see as many of them be able to return in 2021 as possible because all of us tennis fans, uh, you know, it's not just that the headline events we adore. It's the fact that we do have week in, week out action, even dating, uh, going into the end of December. And of course, we had, I believe, five ITF events last week, Judson, three on the women's side, two on the men's side. Let's lock in on the women this week because I believe all three winners, if memory serves me correctly, under the age of 21. Talk to us a little bit about what went down. Yeah, all three winners actually are teenagers, a 19-year-old and two 18-year-olds on the on the women's ITF tour. So it was a, a nice week for teenagers. Yeah. Um, uh, I was, I was going to say, 18-year-old Chinwen uh, Zhang, I believe it, 19-year-old Carol Manet, and 18-year-old Diane Perry, the three winners. So yeah, all teenagers. That's nuts. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, I just we touched on it last week, actually, the the depth of the women's game and particularly the the young women coming up uh and it just shows in the the results this week uh Zhang she she's up in the top 300 now uh and ninth highest ranked teenager in the world and uh you know she has been on fire I I believe this is her third or fourth pro title this year I think it's her fourth pro title this year so she's someone to look forward to and then of course Diane Perry she was year in junior number one last year, not a junior anymore. She's not playing junior events anymore. So this is a <clears throat> this was her first professional champ, first professional title. So a really nice springboard into her professional career. Yeah, absolutely. Let's start quickly with Chin Wen Zhang, and we'll go through all of these players. You look for her, and again, we, we talked about it. Hey, she's October 8th birthday on October 6th. Shout out to that. I can get in. Uh, I can get on her bandwagon very quickly. Uh, 18 years old in this season, she won her first three pro titles, uh, all of them coming on clay, all of them coming, or, or, or first four, excuse me now, pro titles, all of them coming on clay, uh, the, or excuse me, the first three coming on clay. I believe this one was the first hard court title uh if memory serves me correct or was this on clay this week no this was hardcore and in fact it was in the alps so it was fast hardcore because they were mm-hmm. playing in elevation exactly so for her to get you know it's across multiple surfaces now clay and hard courts and overall i believe she's gone something really impressive something like 38 and 8 in her 2020 matches obviously that is a huge jump from her from 2019 where she went seven and eight overall and you look for Zhang again the four pro titles she's now right around number 400 in the world she's going to have opportunities to get into 50k events now and she's probably going to have a wild card floated around here or there this is a player who is a former world junior number six as well when you're looking at a young player's trajectory, you want to see this jump, right? You want to see this streak where they just blitz through the ITF circuit, work their way up to, you know, 50, 75, 100, 125K events. That's exactly what Chin Wen Zhang is doing. Yeah, exactly. She uh, She's actually in the top 300 now. So I think she's she's in that that ranking range that will get her into the all, all of the top ITF events or many of the top ITF events, I should say. And, you know, from there, she can use 2021 as a launching pad toward the WTA if she has some some success in those events. Uh, So this time next year, you could be seeing her in some WTA qualifying or maybe even main draw events if she continues the same trajectory. Yeah, those are the stages, right? Top 400, top 200, top 100, then everything from there is gravy. And look, she's played 94 pro matches in her career, 28-7 and on clay, 38-21 and on hard courts. You love those splits if you are a fan of Chin Wen Zhang's. And yeah, this was another great run for her here to the pro title. Did she beat anyone with a crazy ranking? No, not exactly, but still very good wins for her. Only dropped two sets along the way. The Anna Friedsam win 
in round one particularly impressive and again uh, she gets title number four of her young career uh, to the Diane Perry point you you mentioned former world junior number one she gets the win here I believe as you mentioned uh, for her this is her first career title and I mean for her to go from I think she was I think she was what world junior number one in 2019 as you mentioned now she's right around top 300 in the world that's nuts yeah perfect perfect ranking trajectory for perry going from the junior game predominantly in in 2019 to 2020 ending the year with her first professional title granted it was at you know that lowest professional level the 15k level but that's exactly what that level's meant to be proving grounds for the world's top juniors and the the world's top young professionals that haven't quite made it up to that mid and higher tier yet. So perfect, perfect trajectory for Perry. And she's another one to watch in 2021. Yeah, here's what I would say about her. 17 and 17 in pro tour matches. She got to play a lot of tour level matches this season, I believe, uh, as well. She got to play Strasbourg qualifying. She got to play Roland Garros. She got to play in Prague. And, you know, she uh, lost on those occasions, but certainly put up good fights. What I'm trying to say is, you know, even beyond that, Six and five in 2019 on ITF level uh, matches. She was, I think, something like some somewhere around 12 and 12 this season or now. I think she's like third or what is it? Five wins, I suppose. So 15 and 13 on the year in ITF matches. I think that top 300 is more reflective of the opportunity she's had as a former world junior number one than maybe where she's at consistently week in, week out right now. And it wouldn't shock me to not see her make the biggest jump into, you know, I don't think she's top 100 yet, but I I really do look forward to seeing her play more, you know, 7,500K matches because I do think she's going to have success at that level in 2021. Yeah, you know, she is one of the typically young player that you know she's she is gaining her her professional wings right now i mean it's okay to go six and five go Mm -hmm. you know oh and four at the wta level or whatever she is i mean she's 18 years old she needs to start proving herself eventually but that's okay i mean you can you can grab some losses perhaps those losses earlier in the year at those higher levels led to her winning this title this week uh but you know, I, I actually watched a little bit of the live stream of her of her title win, and I was impressed with her backhand. But she she really used her inside out forehand very well on those clay courts in Antalya. And yeah, there's a lot to to work with there. I mean, I didn't watch a, a ton of the match, but I got to at least lay eyes on her for a few few games, and I thought she looked pretty good. Yeah, no, I thought again. I, I, first title under her belt that's absolutely something you want heading into the 2021 season I think maybe though the player who has had the best form perhaps of all three of these women's champions uh is Carol Monet who or Monet Monet I apologize if I'm butchering it either way uh she is probably the least acclaimed junior of the group was number 30 in the world at a career high in the ITF junior rankings but she has quietly been very very good these past two seasons 31 and 12 in 2019 uh on the pro tour this season she's going to finish at 34 and 12 she's going to end just outside the top 400 she's won i think something like let me look and see real quick how many titles has she won this season she has won now two or three titles on the year steady growth it's the ranking trajectory how often do we have to repeat ourselves but it's been the steadiest from her yeah yeah another french teen woman winning a title this weekend a 19 year old Monet this time and yeah, like you said, there's this is her third title this year, so great progress there. And just have to see how it goes in 2021. She's still down, a little, ranked a little lower than the other two women that we've talked about. So she'll still be battling in the ITFs for a little while. Uh, but keep winning titles, and you, you know, never know where you'll 
where you'll finish soon. Yeah. No, between her, Clara Burel, Diane Perry, it's a it's a very fun time to be a fan of uh, French tennis for sure. There's a very uh, promising group of young talent coming up in the women's game. Uh, that were the those were the women's results. Let's flip quickly to the men. I know there were only two results. Uh, who are our winners on the ITF side? On the men's side, there, there were only the two tournaments, and they were in Antalya on the clay. It was a dual tournament, dual gendered. The women and the men were there. And in Monastir, Tunisia on the hard courts, and that was also a, a dual tournament. So those are the only two tournaments in professional men's tennis worldwide. <clears throat> so not a lot on the slate. In uh, Monastir, Omar Giacalone from... Italy won his first title in more than five years. He's a 28-year-old, sort of Italian, you know, you throw the throw the phrase around, journeyman, but he's ranked 892nd in the world, 28 years old. I think we can safely call him that. Uh, he had 15. He had 15 total ranking points coming into the week. The title this week gives him 10 additional points, so he almost doubled his his ranking total and. I haven't checked, but winning a title when you're 892nd, even if it's the lowest level ITF title, usually jumps you 100, 150 spots, something like that. So nice win for him. And then in uh, in Antalya, it was two Ukrainians in the final. A young Ukraine, Ukrainian, Georgi Kravchenko, he's 20, and he's been making some moves in the ITFs. He's ranked somewhere in the 500s now i think uh but he didn't win the title vadislav orlov 25 year old ukrainian did and that's his second title since the restart so he's he's been playing some good ball and that puts him up to the mid 300s in the atp rankings so he's a guy that we might see on the challenger tour next year yeah and he, again, exactly where you want to be heading into a new season, putting yourself in a position to play uh, a wide range of events. And yeah, because given we don't know how many challengers, how many ITFs there will be, that he may have the option to play both. Uh, I agree with you. That is absolutely going to be big for him. And worth noting for Orlov, I think, what, four of his five victories came in three set matches. A guy willing to go the distance. One of the guys, by the way, who's in the draw again this week, I believe it's four ITF events. Quickly run me through what fans can expect on the ITA circuit this week. Yeah, so there's, like you said, there's four of them, just two men's, two women's. They're all the lowest level $15,000 events. And they're at those two locations again. Monastery on the hard courts, Antalya on the clay, dual events, men and women. And, you know, those, those events are basically doing the bubble life. You know, I think we've discussed this before, but yeah. each of them, each of them are held at resorts there in Monastir and, and and Antalya, right on the Mediterranean Sea. And, you know, these players will book a room for a month, two months, a couple weeks, whatever it may be. <clears throat> and, and, you know, they don't leave the resort. And so they're kind of doing bubble life there. They get a lot of training in during the day, maybe after their match. And so it's a, it's a great setup. And you, you're, you see that with Antalya heading into the new year, they're, they've already scheduled about 15 ITFs <laughs> going into the new year. But they've also, <clears throat> excuse me, they've also scheduled two two challenger tournaments and and actually an ATP tournament. Yeah, it's crazy to see the added investment in a couple of locations. Again, for the WTA Tour, it's China. For the ITF events, it really is Turkey. There seems to be so many different events popping up there. As you mentioned, the growth uh, undeniable on the ITF and Challenger levels moving forward. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, last week of December... Literally the final week of the 2020 calendar, and of course we still have four events rocking and rolling in the tennis season. If that's not emblematic of the tennis calendar in a nutshell, I don't know what else could be. But of course, again, uh, you will be writing and we will come back here next week to talk more about those results. 
I want to switch gears now and do something else to end this podcast. I want to do, again, a little bit of a review of 2020, but also a preview of 2021 and what we might see at the ATP Challenger level. And we have talked about this before on this podcast, made references to it. But, you know, the ATP Challenger uh, media team, they come out with an incredible media guide that gives you the stats from the 2020 season, who had the most wins, who had the highest win percentage, where do some of the accomplishments stack up in ATP. ATP Challenger history, and I wanted to run through some of those results with you, Judson, because I think they give us a great, uh, or they perfectly capture what happened at the Challenger Tour level, who are the young players who made gains, who uh, are rising up the rankings, who are the players who maybe dropped off, who you expected to see but didn't, where some of these accomplishments, again, sit historically, and I want to start with the guys who ended up leading the 2020 calendar uh, in match wins at the ATP Challenger level. And I think when you look at the top five, it's actually, it's really interesting because it tells the story of different portions of the season. You have a guy like Arthur Rinderneck coming in at fourth at 22 and 12, who was so good at the indoor Challenger stretch through January and February. You have a guy like Francisco Serendolo who comes in at second at 23 and seven, He uh, who was so good on the clay courts uh, down the home stretch of this 2020 Challenger season. You have a guy like Daniel Eltmeyer, who obviously was pretty good at the French Open, goes on to have some success, uh, he, or he have some success just throughout, I suppose, a challenge level throughout the season. I think he was in Ann Arbor, if memory serves me correctly, to start the year. Uh, then you have guys like Karatsev and Popko, who are just grinding week in, week out. Uh, your thoughts on the match wins leaders. Are there any guys who aren't on the list, maybe, and you see, you know, sixth, a guy like Carlos Alcaraz, Daniel Galan, uh, Zapata Morales, Tied for ninth, you have guys like Munar, Safilian, Rodionov, Mahak. Anyone missing from that list that surprises you? Well, looking at it, I'm surprised Musetti's not on there a little bit. Uh, although he did play some ATP ball, and perhaps that's, you know, that, that of course takes away some of your challenger tournament opportunities. But I'm surprised that uh, I don't think he's on that list. So uh, a little surprising there. But yeah, the, the challenger tour media guide by the numbers at the end of the year, one of my favorite reads we you you see and you you know what's going on in the ATP tour and the WTA tour I mean, you follow those accounts everybody talks about it and, and there's less events to to pay attention to so you, you 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 remember the results a little bit more the challenger tour is broad it played in every corner of the world there's hundreds of tournaments in, in a normal year uh, you know, on all the surfaces, all the continents, all the players, you know, hundreds of players playing it. And so it's harder to keep track of. So I love going through this piece, which is put out, you know, it's on the ATP Challenger website, and it's also on the ATP Challenger uh, Twitter handle. And so it's a great piece to look, for, look forward to, and you can learn a lot from it. But yeah, uh, I think that's a great point you make. It does tell a story about the the stretches of the season i hadn't thought about that but you know we didn't hear from arthur rendernich uh the last half of the season but he's still on the list because he was on fire the first half of the season before the pandemic hit uh he's a great indoor player he made two finals in a row in canada i believe both against maxine cressy one one lost one and uh yeah so he's on there although you didn't really see his name at the end of the year uh, Sorondolo didn't have a lot of success at the beginning of the year had a bunch at the end of the year in that challenger stretch in South America so he's on there uh, so that's a great point yeah you know not to push back, Rinderneck wasn't horrible down the home stretch. I mean, yeah, the majority of his success came at the beginning, but uh, I, I mean, he wasn't great. A couple, I guess, what he went something like two and five, two and six, I guess, down the home stretch on the clay. Had you know a couple of wins here and there. I think there was a quarterfinal of that Prague 125k challenger at the end of August. But no, I mean, I, I agree with you to your larger point. He was so good at the start of the season, and you know, I think would help to to your point about win percentage. A guy like Musetti not being on there, or excuse me, total wins. He probably just didn't play enough events to qualify. I know he played a bunch of challengers at the end of the year, but yeah, there were ATP events 
Ross mixed in that as well, and just he wasn't playing, you know, as many challenger events to start the season as some of these other guys. I'm very happy to see a guy like Yuri Rodionov, who was so good at the start of the year, uh, get uh, get his name on the list. A guy like Jami Munar, who was just pencil him into a semifinal of all of those clay court challengers to end the season. I mean, a guy like Carlos Alcaraz, who at 20-4, and four, you feel like him coming in at 6, that feels a little bit low. But then you get to the win percentage leaders during the 2020 season, and I mean, that's the number one story, the number one takeaway. Carlos Alcaraz at 17 years old goes 20-4 and four in challenger matches. That's an 833 win percentage. In terms of the most wins since COVID, he goes 20-4. and four. That's second only to Sarandolo, who is 22-6. and six. Both guys lead the ATP Challenger Tour with three titles on the season. Carlos Alcaraz is your biggest mover on the year, jumping 350 ranking spots from 491 to 140 uh, to 141. Your other biggest jumpers, Musetti from 261 to 128. Eltmeyer 321 to 130. Karatsev 270 to 112. Rodionov 301 to 144. I mean... Look for Carlos. I, 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 for Carlos Alcaraz, it was the fact that he was what I think, and I, I have to look through the stats, but I, I believe the company he joined. It's like Richard Gasquet, who's the greatest under eighteen year old tennis player of all time, was the youngest to win multiple titles. Then it's oh yeah, here's the list. It goes: Gasquet's the youngest to win multiple titles at sixteen and eight months. Then FAA at seventeen one, Nadal at seventeen one, Tomic at seventeen three, and Carlos Alcaraz at Novak Djokovic, both at. 17 years and five months. Del Potro also did it at 17 years, six months. That's a really nice list to be on, right? Every single guy on that list has been a top 20 player. And even, you know, Bernard Tomic, who I think we can all agree at this point, probably a bust in terms of his potential. Uh, but he didn't fail because of his tennis talent. He failed because of his off-court issues. It's hard to think Carlos Alcaraz has anything but top 20, top 15 potential in his future uh, after he joins this sort of company. He has top 10, 15 written all over him right now. If he continues to to you know improve particularly his serve if he can develop a serve that's the only real weakness that i see in his game right now and he's young you know he's 17 uh he's still 17 i think right or is he 18 uh, uh, i know i think he's still 17 yeah yeah he's 17 and but that's what he needs to develop that's what he needs to work on but if he develops any kind of serve sort of a rafa-esque serve you know rafa didn't have the strongest serve but improved it over time if he can do that same thing uh then i mean the sky's the limit i think i think he's a potential future grand slam winner maybe multiple grand slams i mean i don't want to get put the cart before the horse but it's hard not to say that with this guy he is incredible he has and i'm not being hyperbolic here he has the best drop shot in tennis in my opinion, right now. I mean, he's certainly confident using it. Uh, there's no denying that. And it's just, yeah, his skill set for someone age 17 is so well-developed. And just, again, some more numbers for you. Here are the 10 youngest winners on the Challenger Tour since 2010. Felix Ogier-Aliassime has the number one and two spots. Then it goes Zverev, Alcaraz, Nikola Kuhn, Alcaraz, Alcaraz, Sinner, Moliker, Rude. Again, that's a really good list to be on. Here are the most titles for a player on the ATP Challenger Tour age 17 and under. Gasquet has five. Alcaraz, FAA, Del Potro, Djokovic have three. That's really good company to join. The guys below them, Burdich, Nadal, Tomic, Fritz, Sinner, all have two. Again, all of those guys, pretty quality tennis players as well. It's just... You don't join this, you know, he's the first guy in 2003 to win an ATP Challenger title. You don't have all of these firsts under your belt, under your name, if 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 you're not a hell of a tennis player. Like, I don't know how else to put it. Yeah, I agree with you. It's not hyperbolic to say this guy has the goods. His confidence in his serve, his forehand, his willingness to assert himself, his ability to move for someone at 17 years old, so comfortable on the clay. And of course, we all want to see it still on hard courts. We all want to see it against, you know, a, a different caliber of players. It felt like he was playing the same guys each and every week at these events. Uh, but 
it's just when you join the conversation of people like Gasquet and Djokovic and Del Potro and Nadal, it's hard to not get that excited about him. Yeah, um, he yeah he's incredible. So you, you bring up the hard court thing. He he did make two hard court finals in ITFs at the beginning of the year, and I believe won one. May have won both of them. I can't remember. I think he won one though. But what a what a group of lists to be on. And let's see, what was it? Two or three years ago, we were having basically the same exact conversation about Felix, about FAA. And look where he's at now. He made a huge jump in 2019 and then just completely proved that that level of his in 2020, in my mind. I mean, he didn't have the best 2020, but there is no one saying that he's going to slip back down into the 50s, that he's not for real. Uh, and we were having the same conversations about FAA, basically, and now he's a top 20 player. And I think you're going to see some sort of similar jump for Alcaraz next year. And I think I've, I don't know, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but if you, if we, if we had a normal ranking system this year, you know, of course, because of COVID, we're using a modified ranking system, basically a two-year ranking system that has Alcaraz down in the 100s. If we were using a normal ranking system based on a 52-week rollover, uh, 52-week accumulation of your best tournaments, Alcaraz would be, I think, in like the 60s or something like that. And so you would you would already be seeing this ranking jump that FAA made, maybe even a little a little more accelerated than FAA's. And you know, so next year I just completely expect him to roll through the challengers. He already is. He went twenty and four this year. He won three titles, tied for the most of anybody. And so he's already shown that he's top challenger level. So I completely expect him to roll through challengers at a quick pace, get into that, get into the ATP tour and, and, and see what he can do there. And by the end of, by the end of 2021, I mean, I think Alcaraz is going to be an ATP player. Yeah. And yeah, I, I think we've done this before. I know I talked about this on our ATP award show with Gil Gross, which you guys can hear on the Great Shot podcast later this week. And I talked about it a little bit on the deciding point with Jamie McDonald. I think FAA is exactly where he wants to be. I'm not going to run through the numbers again because I, I don't want to repeat myself to the listeners. But he is exactly, in terms of his age and growth curve, exactly the same place as a Djokovic, a Murray, uh, and a Federer, not a Nadal, who was, again, so good by the age of 18 that he was winning French Opens already. But, you know, he has more ATP finals under his belt. He just doesn't have as many titles. And all of those guys made a huge jump during their age 20 and early parts of age 21 seasons. And then they were top 10 players. And from there, the sky always went up. And I do think FAA is still on that growth curve. I just think Carlos Alcaraz is also on that curve now as well. To everything you said, it would be... It's, or it's that much more difficult for him to rise up the rankings, particularly as he wants to get closer and closer to the top 100 because of how many people have protected rankings, protected points, giving the adjustment to the system. But yeah, I mean, again, all of these numbers reflect just how good he was this season. And he was one of, I think, let me look at the numbers. And again, this this media guide so uh, thorough. He was one of 14 first-time winners on the season. And what's so amazing when you look at those 14 first-time winners 13 of the 14 were under the age of 24 right you had guys like Alcaraz Musetti Nakashima Sebastian Corda who of course we have all expected big things from and uh, who are delivering you had a guy like Thomas Mahak at 19 years old who of course you have to take uh, notice of but then you have the guys like the Rindernecks the Kwiatkowski Serendolos Melaginis Taberners of the world who also broke through this season and I think again when I look at this 14 first time winners I, I don't have the numbers by comparisons to 2019 but that to me just continues to reassert the fact that it's a generational shift that's occurring at every level of the game from you know from the ATP tour at the top to the future circuit at the bottom you have you know 13 of the 14 first time winners all being these younger players uh, who are breaking through and I, I just think you saw that at the challenger season this year uh, would you agree yeah I was going to bring up the fact that you see it at every level the the ATP 
of course, there's been a lot of fanfare around the fact that we're seeing that shift. It's very obvious. Uh, we're going from the big three and, you know, the small, kind of the small three, the, the Burdiches and Sanghas of the world winning everything to now you have Zverev, you have Team and Sitsipas. They're the, they're the main breadwinners on the ATP tour now. And so you see that at the ATP level, that shift from the 30s guys winning most of the title to the young 20s guys. You're seeing that on the ATP, on the Challenger Tour as well. Um, and and another, another Alcaraz stat here. So there were six teenagers, or six tournaments on the ATP Challenger Tour uh, that were won by teenagers this year. Three of them won by Alcaraz. So the teenagers are having a lot of success, but most of it's Alcaraz. <laughs> well, so I, I disagree a little bit with you there because you have a guy like Lorenzo Musetti, right, who didn't maybe – who didn't win more than one challenger title, but certainly played a huge part in the story of the tennis restart once you hit August. You have a guy like Brandon Nakashima, who was really good to start the season, was really good to end 2019 as well, played really well through all of the pandemic events. Obviously, none of those pandemic events counted for anything in the ATP rankings, but then ends his season with a challenger title, the first of his career in Orlando. And I just think, you know, Sebastian Cord is 20 years old. He's not 19, but it's the same age range as a Carlos Alcaraz. He was a guy you circled if he could get healthy, former top world junior in the world. After his breakthrough at the French Open, you just thought, okay, it would be more surprising than not if he doesn't win a challenger title in the next 12 months. He got that under his belt. I just think it's all of these guys coming through. And yeah, Alcaraz is the headliner, of course, but you know, I, I think it's the next wave of players. The Davidovich Fokinas, Rodionov, who had the back-to-back challenger titles. He's 21 years old uh, at, in February. And you had, I just think it was, you know, from start to finish, you had a bunch of different guys. You know, Pedro Martinez-Portero made a bunch of different finals. He's 23 years old. You had a bunch of different guys who are in that next-gen cohort who really made breakthroughs at the ATP challenger level. Yeah, yeah. My my comment was a little tongue in cheek, but uh, <laughs> but the the six titles by teenagers. I again, I don't have the stats from twenty nineteen, but that that sounds high as well. I mean, it's hard to win a it's hard to win a challenger t- tournament, um, and, and to do it as a teenager is an impressive feat. The fact that Alcaraz did it three times at seventeen is amazing. Uh, but Gresky, what are your who are your who are your challenger players of the year? On on my list, I have Alcaraz, Sarundolo, Karatsev. Uh, you know, maybe Musetti, although I don't know that he played enough on the tour. But those are kind of my three, four guys that that I think really, really shone during 2020. And I think I would probably have to give the edge maybe to Karatsev, Aslan Karatsev. Uh, although he doesn't have, you know, it's not the same sexy story because he's not 17 years old uh he i i don't know how old he is i think he's 24 25 26 somewhere in that range but uh he really had a full season of success on the challenger tour he won a a title in bangkok just right around the australian open and then just continued to roll through through the the czech republic Clay Challenger 125s uh, to begin the restart, you know, all the way really to the end of the season. Uh, I think he won won one of the indoor challengers near the end of the year in Italy. Uh, he makes all the lists on these on these on the media guide. He's he's near the top or at the top in wins percentage, leading uh, match match wins, tournament wins basically every statistic so for me he's kind of he's my challenger player of the year slightly over Alcaraz yeah I it's gotta be I mean if you go 18 and 2 over a 20 match stretch on the ATP challenger tour you're probably the player of the year right and I know that only resulted in two titles for him but that's a better stretch than Alcaraz had than Sarandolo had it's just Karatsev, he's nine and four before COVID twenty or eighteen and two after it. He was the best player from start to finish 
on the Challenger Tour. Now, who are the guys who I think were really good at different portions of the year? I thought J.J. Wolf to start the season, he won uh, two titles. I, I don't remember where they were at this point. You I'm may have sure. one of them. Yeah, one of them was in Australia to start the year, and then was it Columbus? Yeah, Columbus was, was Columbus. the other one. Yeah, I think I, yeah. I I was just trying to remember if there was a Columbus or not before he the season ended. Columbus. Yeah, no, it's him or Torpegard. You can pencil those yeah, in right yeah. now. If one of them are in the draw, they're winning. If it's in Ohio, um, but yeah, he was so good to start the year at the challenger level. So clearly was ready to excel through that. And we were all talking about after Australia and heading into, you know, after his Western and Southern results, heading into the U S open, we were like, this is a guy who's ready to play ATP events at the hard court level, or excuse me, hardcore events at the ATP level. Um, and I think he was notable. I think Nakashima from start to finish was really, really consistent. I know he didn't end up with the most repetitions, but I mean, he was a guy, if you throw in all of those UTR events in the summer, he belongs in the conversation. Daniel Galan, 20 and nine was so good from start to finish. It's a good show. Yeah. Altmaier was really, really good. If I was to name the all challenger team, first team, and we'll give them I don't know. We'll do it in college tennis fashion. We'll give them six slots. I would say Karatsev plays one singles on the all-tournament team. Surindolo probably plays... Eh, i probably go... I'm going to go J.J. Wolf plays two because I'm looking at the win percentage leader. J.J. Wolf 15-4 and four at 789. Surindolo a little bit below that at 23-7. and seven. So I think J.J. Wolf a little bit better. He gets the knock to the two singles. I think Surindolo plays three. I think Alcaraz plays four. Dennis Kudla was sneaky good this year. I know he made, you know, he wins, um, what was it, Carey that he won right Carey. before Orlando, and then he made the semifinal in Orlando as well. I believe he made the final in Dallas back in February too and was playing some really good tennis all season long. He would probably line up at the five singles position, and then, man, number six, I'm going to go, oh, Rodionov was really good to start the year. Rodionov and Munar would be my rotation for six and seven because I, you know, Hami Munar, again, the last portion of the season, pencil him in the semifinals, right? He made the semifinals if it felt like any event. This feels like a guy who, you know, you can, again, he will be in South America if there are events in February or not, and he'll be making sure those clay courts are ready for 2022 because you know the clay court season is going to be such a big portion of his game moving forward. Yeah, those are probably the seven guys I would go with. Again, Karatsev, Wolf, Surindolo, Alcaraz, Kudla, and then either Munar. Yeah, I'm just going to go Munar. Sorry, Rodionov. I'm going to put Munar in there. Yeah, that, that's that's a good list. I, I can't say that I disagree with any of that. That basically is the list of multiple-time winners on the Challenger Tour. Not exactly, but uh, but pretty close. Yeah, I, uh, Steve Johnson was, you know, pound for pound, really freaking good. Uh, I, and if it was win percentage he's a, he's leaders. He's an ATP player. Yeah, that's the thing. It's it's mo- it's minimum 19 matches played to qualify for the win percentage leaders. And I wonder if they did that just to include J.J. Wolf because he's 15 and 4. You have another guy who's 15 and 5, 16 and 5. And they were like, no, 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 we need J.J. Make it 15. Make it minimum 19 matches. Yeah, uh, yeah. He does belong to be on the list. But, yeah, you know. Him, Taro Daniel, those are both guys who are really good. Ooh, Mark Andrea Hoosler was really good down the home stretch as well. Got to give really him was. a shout. Um, yeah. But no, I mean, I, I talked about the biggest ranking movers already. I, again, just go absorb this media guide. I could just, I could read this thing all day. There's a nugget in there you'll enjoy at each and every moment. You know, they have the oldest winners this year: Philip Kohlschreiber, Stan Wawrinka. I think the fact that those two appear on this list speaks uh, to the sort of season it was the fact that those two are playing challenger events the fact that philip kohlschreiber really is you know closer to 150 in the world than he is being top 50 again um sort of speaks to where we're at but yeah looking through this media guide are there any other things you would point out or any other reflections recaps you have from the 2020 challenger season well just real quickly speaking of kohlschreiber i I was looking at the australian open uh, entry list which came out yesterday and uh, there are only two, you know, 104 players are directly accepted initially. And then you add the wild cards and the qualifiers and all that. So the, the top 104 will get in. Out of the world's top 104 male ATP players, 
102 of them signed up. The only two that didn't were, uh, oh, who was the other one? Cole Schreiber was one of them. Uh, and then Fernando Verdasco. So those are two guys that, ah, they're walking off into the sunset of their careers, you have to feel. Maybe not quite there, you know, they're not ready to retire just yet, but they're getting close. Um, and yeah, I think you're right. Cole Schreiber, more of a, almost more of a challenger player now than an ATP player. He, he still has that level, but he's not far from, from hanging it up, I don't think. But anyway, uh, yeah, some, some of these, uh, some, some other little stats that jumped out to me. I see that uh, there were three top 100 finals. One of them was Tiago Montero versus Chech Marco Cecinato in Punta del Este. That was at the beginning of the year, uh, right after the Australian Open. And that is the match that immediately, when I think of the 2020 challenger season, that was my match of the year. So I'm glad to see that one on there. That was a, an 86 versus 77 in the world matchup. Uh, <laughs> lowest ranked winner this year was was one of our boys, Ulysses Blanche, uh, in Ann Arbor to start the year. He was ranked 419 when he won that title. Um, let's see. There were... Uh, I think you went through the list of first-time winners. I've, I'm always curious to, to see that. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I think that's that's pretty much what jumped out at me, other than what we've discussed already. Yeah, no, I mean, newcomer of the year on the ATP Challenger Tour probably goes to me for my performance in that Ann Arbor Challenger final on the broadcast. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I remember uh, I remember downloading PlaySight so I could hear some <laughs> <laughs> some. Uh, commentary there. Yeah, I had to throw that in there. No, the last one I would add is, uh, you know, it's a good litmus test of where we are at in terms of who has the most talent coming up the pipelines. And of course, for some of these countries, you know, you, you look at who won the most titles by country, America, the leaders this year, uh, the United States, 11 and three in finals, Spain, seven and seven, Germany, five and two, Argentina, four and three, Switzerland, three and oh, you had France at three and five, Italy at two and five. Uh, those were the only other countries that got over oh Russia three and two those were the only other countries that played more than five titles and what's so interesting is you look at the list of winners that are Americans Wolf Blanche Kwiatkowski Cressy Tiafo Korda Nakashima and then of course you have Kudla and Johnson on that list as well but it's a pretty young list of players. It speaks to, again, the United States maybe doesn't have that number one guy in the world, but there's a lot of depth coming up the ranks. I think for Spanish tennis, you look at their winners, Alcaraz, Zapata Morales, Taberner, Munar Martinez. Uh, all those guys are 23 or younger, so you see the pipeline refilling for them. Shout out to you, Germany. Cole Schreiber, Hanifman, Ota, Stieb, Martyrer. Uh, not too bad, all things concerned. But yeah, I thought that was an interesting note as well. Good for the I suppose if you were an American men's tennis fan, you'd like to hear that statistic that the U.S. 11 titles, uh, 11 and 3 in finals overall. And I imagine some of those three losses were American on American crimes. Uh, but yeah, it was a fantastic season of ATP Challenger tennis. And of course, uh, we will talk, I'm sure, more about the ATP Challenger Tour as we get closer to 2021. Some of the guys we expect to see make a jump in 2021 uh, certainly had good seasons during the 2020 season, of course. Guys, like Yuri Rodianov, Lorenzo Musetti, Alejandro Davidovich Fokina. We've already covered in our Next Gen 2.0 series. The next episode of that will be Wednesday here on this mini break podcast. So all of you can look forward to that. You can also look forward to Judson's Maps column, which comes out later this week. Judson looks at the break. Oh, rather than me say, Judson, you are here on the podcast. Tell our listeners what they can expect from you this week. Well, I finally finished it. And we're, we're just putting some some polish on it but uh no it's an i think it's going to be a great piece to read it's very long it's over five thousand words but uh it's worth your time i believe uh and you know what it does is it just but it starts with a world map of every professional men's tournament i didn't i didn't have the data to do the women and i'm going to attempt to do that next year uh, but every professional men's tournament played worldwide in 2020 is on one map from the Grand Slams to the ITF 15Ks. And, and then from there, you know, we, we talk about the numbers, uh, we break it down by continent, we, we show maps of, you know, what, what tournaments were in France this year and, and at what level and on what surface. 
And what does all that mean? You know, when you compare Europe as a whole, Europe played 69% of the held 69% of the clay matches in in 2020 worldwide. Uh, America had three on green clay. What does that mean? You know, why is that happening? Things like that. So it's a really in-depth piece, but I think it's it's going to be worth your, worth your time, worth the reader's read. And uh, yeah, it took a lot of work. So I'm excited about that coming out. Um, and then just one quick shout out on Twitter. If you follow Twitter, follow me at Tennis and Aloha. I've been working on and have the first round of a a stadium tournament out and it has I, I went through and looked at my favorite my 128 favorite tournaments worldwide put them in a bracket and put them in a poll for you all to vote on so go check that out and go vote on that I appreciate you making it 128 and not 64 or 32 like oh, a reasonable get the, human being yeah, you had to get the challengers in there if you only yeah, did exactly. 64 it's going to be filled with ATPs going to be filled with WTAs I wanted some of those those awesome little challenger stadiums you know they they may not be big but they're full of heart <laughs> yeah no i'm a little offended that uh you didn't go 256 and throw in the west bloomfield sports club as well just beautiful <laughs> hey USTA i did get a set. college stadium in there yeah that's hey, have that's you seen all it? I, uh i think you went with if memory serves me correct georgia right georgia yeah, I think you, yeah. yeah you went with uh miguel uh, well, is that, I don't know if that's, the yeah. Name of it. yeah, it's Dan McGill stadium. Yes, it is. Yep, Trust yep. me. I went with Georgia. So I threw one college stadium in there. There's a couple Davis cup venues, most of them from Spain, you know? Um, and then venues like the, the bull ring that Federer and Zverev played in, uh, old venues like Forest Hills where the U S open was, was played until 1977 Kuyong, where the Australian Open was played until 1988. Uh, so those, those are still those are in there. And then, of course, the big ones, Indian Wells, and Monte Carlo, uh, even Indian Wells, Court 2, Wimbledon, Court 18, you know, the Graveyard of Champions, Court 3. Those are all in there. Yeah. No, I mean, look, there, there's a correct answer to what's the best stadium in college tennis. I'm not going to say it because I got in enough trouble this weekend when I literally had just like rolled out of bed, saw a tweet, and I was like, oh, let me give my superficial list of top 10 schools over the past 10 years and got way too many mean texts from people being like, you snubbed my school, you <laughs> son of a <laughs> Is, it, is it, it's like, not the one that I picked? <laughs> <laughs> no comment it's not that it's not it's not that it's not not either uh again just right. no comment uh but yeah it's uh there is a correct answer though and i i don't want to get in too much trouble well, what about but... tennis in general what's your favorite stadium i mean so this is a personal answer but it, it, the answer to the what is the best stadium in college tennis is not the varsity tennis center in ann arbor that's my favorite tennis stadium just because i love freaking being there i love the atmosphere i love the environment that's not the correct answer uh, okay you want my serious answer oh man well you don't need favorite? to tell me college but tell me tell me in pro tennis what's your favorite no, I, that's all tennis i mean okay okay uh no 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 i there there is a pro tennis answer i just gotta think uh I mean, I would give anything. If you're asking me what tournament could I play in, it would be Indian Wells or they put a men's event in Charleston because Charleston's freaking awesome. Charleston's uh, on the list. It, yeah. The premier green clay stadium in the world. Oh, without question. Without question. Although I'm sure the people at the <laughs> USTA National Campus are like, what What about our stadium? Like, we have two yeah, stadium yeah. courts. Um, and having played on one of those stadium courts, it's freaking awesome. But anyways, um, yes, I know. All of that content, again, fantastic. Go vote in the polls. Give us your take on the best stadiums. You go to Tennis in Aloha. And again, to find all of Judson's work, go to our website, CrackRackets.com. There you'll find things like our College Contender Series, previewing the 2021 college tennis season, getting all of you ready for that action. Of course, we've also got our Next Gen 2.0 series where we break down the 
be ascending 21 and under players currently rising up the ATP rankings that and so much more of course this podcast the great shot podcast cracked interviews podcast I will always ask that you like rate subscribe review share with your friends you need those more immediate updates Twitter Instagram Facebook YouTube we are at cracked rackets you want to message me directly I am at great shot pod shout out as always to our super producers Max Fligner and Daniel Westoff for the of an editing job they do day in day out shout out of course as well to our friends at midwest sports go to midwestsports.com use that promo code cr15 to get 15 percent off your order any of your last minute holiday shopping you want it that perfect tennis centric gift they've got it on their website all of the best brand, brands all of the best pricing just go to midwestsports.com use that promo code cr15 to let them know that we sent you there but with that in mind for my wonderful co-host judson wall who i have to ask any final thoughts so my my winner would be would have to be Monte Carlo. Ooh, Ooh. Monte Carlo slightly over Pietrangeli. Uh, you know those those would be my finalists, and those two slightly over the two Indian Wells courts maybe. All right, perfect. and then my favorite grass court is maybe maybe Halle. But those I'm are my gl- thoughts, my friend. Yeah, no, I'm glad you only have one favorite. That's good. Um, but no, of course for my wonderful co-host Judson Wall, our super producers Max Flager and Daniel Westoff, our friends at Midwest Sports, and all of us here at both Cracked Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. Judson, what do we tell the people? That's the break. Perfect. And we Got will it. see you all next week. Thanks, everyone.